So, this evening we resume our series working basically chronologically through the Old Testament. We started in Genesis and worked all the way through and came to Sinai. Now we camped out, as it were, at Sinai and spent about two years systematically studying through the Old Covenant. And now we have picked up with the narrative as the Israelites leave Sinai and progress toward the Promised Land. And we are at the point in Old Testament history where the Israelites sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan and 10 of them came back and said, yes, the land is good, but there are giants there and there's no way we're going to be able to do it. And they made the hearts of the Israelites melt. And so the Israelites refused to go in to fight and take the land that God had promised to them. As I said, two of the spies said, let us go up. God is with us and He'll give us the land. God was displeased and He said that He was going to wipe out this nation and He was going to make the children of Moses a nation as He had promised so many years earlier to make the children of Abraham a nation. God was going to start over with Moses. But Moses intercedes for the people and God says in the passage we're looking at tonight, Numbers 14, 20-45, that He will pardon and yet in this section God devises a way to make sure that the nations around don't think poorly of Him and don't mock saying the arm of the Lord was strong enough to bring the Israelites up out of the land of Egypt and yet was too weak to bring the Israelites in to the land of Canaan. God says that He is going to make sure that every one of the people who were 20 years up and older who refused to go in and fight and take the land is going to make sure every one of them dies in the wilderness but God is going to bring in the younger generation in due time. God's declaration of this plan and this intention and the people's response to it is the subject of our sermon tonight. So we will get into the meat of that in several minutes. But first let me give you two reminders, beginning with this. The whole Exodus narrative, including this section, is typological, or some people say typological, because it comes from the root word typology. And typology is when real historical events or patterns also point forward to something greater and better in the biblical narrative. So the classic example to illustrate this is the sacrificial lamb. Countless numbers of real, actual lambs were slain throughout the Old Testament period. But each of these were typological of Jesus, who is the greater and better Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist puts it. So when theologians say that the Exodus narrative is typological, what they mean by that is that though the Israelites' departure from Egypt and journey through the wilderness and entry into the Promised Land was real and historical... It also pointed forward to something that is greater and better. 
Namely, getting free from the guilt and bondage of our sin and certain death in slavery in an Egypt of sorts and following God through the wilderness of this life until He brings us to heaven, our land flowing with milk and honey which lies beyond the Jordan River of death. Many passages in Scripture give us an explicit warrant to interpret the Exodus narrative this way. For example, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 talks about entering God's rest. And Hebrews chapter 3 verses 16 to 19 alludes back to the events contained in our text tonight. Numbers 14. It says, Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Then Hebrews 4 goes on to say that we should not fail to enter God's rest because of unbelief as these Israelites did. So Hebrews relates the promised land to heaven by way of typology. As the Israelites had the opportunity to enter the promised land, but failed to do so because of disobedience stemming from unbelief. So, in the 21st century, we have the opportunity to enter heaven. But it is possible to fail to enter because of disobedience stemming from unbelief. That's what Hebrews 3 and 4 does with this passage, which gives us an explicit warrant to interpret the section of text we're dealing with in Numbers 4, 14, in this typological way. So that's the first reminder. The second reminder is this. We get into heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This will be important to keep in mind because throughout the rest of the sermon, I'm going to tell you that you need to do something and that you need to obey and that if you don't obey, you won't enter heaven. And I wouldn't want you to come away from this sermon with the idea that you need to earn or merit heaven. Perish the thought. As the prophet Isaiah says, all of our righteousness, in other words, even all of our best deeds, are as filthy rags with regard to justification. We could never earn it. Getting into heaven is by grace. It is undeserved. It is not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. It's not because we have atoned for our sins, but it's because Jesus has atoned for our sins. It's not because of what we have done, but it's because of what Jesus has done. 
We receive what Jesus has done for us by faith, which is shifting our trust away from ourselves and away from anything else and anyone else and placing our trust entirely on Jesus. This is the basis, the meritorious basis of our getting into heaven. Christ's work alone, which is given to us by grace alone and received through faith alone. So that's the second reminder that we should have in our minds as we come to our study tonight. So with those two reminders, fresh in our minds, let's get into the meat of our study tonight. And the first thing that I want to show you from the scriptures, from our passage tonight, is that genuine faith works. Genuine faith works. The work of Christ is the sole meritorious basis of our salvation. But genuine faith in Christ's work is active and obedient. The Apostle James deals with this, but rather than turning you to the book of James immediately, we can see it first in our text tonight. By reading Numbers 14, and then reading Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, which alludes to the events back in Numbers 14, and is therefore an inspired commentary on Numbers 14, we can see that though the work of Christ is the sole basis of our salvation, the Bible presents genuine faith in Christ's work as being active and obedient. Who brought the Israelites out of Egypt? God! No one would ever say that the Israelites got themselves out. That their power got them out. No one would ever say that they earned it. But listen here, they still had to walk. Likewise, who eventually brought the Israelites into the promised land? It was God. No one would say that their power did it. No one would say that they earned it. But they still had to fight. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 19 tells us that the first generation which had come up out of Egypt, the generation who failed to enter the promised land, failed to enter because of unbelief. Here's the the quote. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And if we read the verse before, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 18, we see that this unbelief was manifest in disobedience. Listen to Hebrews 3, 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. God had promised, I will bring you in. But that first generation of Israelites evidently didn't believe God. Because they didn't act in the way that a believing nation would. They disobeyed by not fighting. And so we read that section in Hebrews 13, 18. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? 
but those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. See how faith and obedience are related? In fact, see how in God's eyes, there is no faith where there is no obedience. With respect to the events we're looking at tonight, in God's mind, according to Hebrews 3, to disobey is to exercise unbelief. To exercise faith, by contrast, would have looked like obeying. And then remember that this story in, in Numbers 14, it was real and historical, and yet it was typological, as I just reminded you. And so the way that Hebrews 4 develops this typology is that we must believe to enter God's rest, according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3. And this is apparently the same thing as saying, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, which is what Hebrews 4.11 says. So to summarize what I've said so far, Hebrews 3.18 and 19 says that in Numbers 14, the people did not believe and that was manifest by their disobedience. In Hebrews 4, the inspired writer says, just like their faith would have looked like obedience, and since they disobeyed, we can see that they did not believe, so it is the same today. And we who believe enter that rest, and that looks like striving to enter that rest, and making sure that we obey. So do you have to earn heaven? No. You don't. And you couldn't anyway. But listen here. Do you have to strive to enter heaven? And do you have to obey to enter heaven? Apparently yes. According to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. In God's mind revealed to us in Hebrews 3 and 4. Is this relationship between faith and obedience, in which faith looks like and manifests itself in obedience. And disobedience manifests a lack of faith. This is why sometimes we are told, as in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And yet at other times we are told, as in Mark chapter 1 and 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, which is it? Do you need only faith? Or do you have to repent too? Why does the Bible say sometimes believe and sometimes it says repent and believe? Well, in God's eyes, real, genuine, sincere, Saving faith will manifest itself in repentance, which is turning away from sin and turning toward obedience. 
in God's eyes, who really believes that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away as many sins? Who really believes that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, in a sense, as James says in chapter 2 and verse 19, even the demons believe and shudder. And yet that section goes on to teach us that that kind of faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The faith that God counts as real, genuine, saving faith is always accompanied by corresponding, consistent works. This is the thrust of James chapter 2, 14 to 26. So those with genuine saving faith are those who put in the effort to obey. Those with genuine saving faith are the Joshua's and the Caleb's who say, let us go up at once and occupy the land. Do not rebel against the Lord. Those who are saved are like those who the lame man in the Gospels who like the lame man in the Gospels hear Jesus say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And they do it. Who made the lame man well? The lame man? No, it was Jesus. But Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And that man had to use his quads and his calves and the tendons in his ankles and in his knees. And he had to stand up. And likewise, the Israelites had to leave Egypt. By definition, if they never left Egypt, they would never be in the promised land. If the man never rose up and walked, he would never walk. What real Christianity looks like is a commitment to believe what God has said in His Word and to live accordingly. And this is the manner of entering heaven. It's not the meritorious basis of entering heaven, but it is the manner of entering heaven. See, everyone wants to live in the promised land. Everyone wants to go to heaven. But not everyone wants to take God at His word and reorient His life accordingly. People don't object to being in the promised land or being in heaven, but they have a problem with the way you get there. They have a problem with the manner by which God has said, this is how you get in. This is the path you walk. This is the journey you take. This is the means by which you will come into the promised land. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus said also in Luke chapter 14 verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He tells us in that same section, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? The statement about the narrow gate and the hard way and few who find it teaches us that it is very typical in our day and age that there will be the same sort of proportion of people who will take the wide gate and the easy way that leads to destruction and who will enter by the narrow gate and walk that hard way that leads to life. There will be the same sort of proportion of people who divide this way as there was with the ten spies and the two spies. Very often ten will go the easy way. And only two will enter by the narrow gate. The statements about the cost of following Jesus tells us that action is required. And that the manner of entering the promised land will be difficult. It may cost you relationships, your career, or even your life itself. In this sense, receiving God's free grace in Christ to you may be costly. Jesus wants us to know in signing up for a journey to the promised land that it will be a hot, dusty journey through a wilderness which will, during which we will have to be dependent upon Him for water from the rock and bread from heaven and that we will have to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And He wants us to count the cost. And He wants us to understand that if we want to be in the promised land, this is the manner in which we will have to enter the promised land. And He wants us to believe the gospel and orient our lives accordingly, that if we, we trust in Jesus and believe who He is and follow Him, we will get there. Jesus wants us to think of the Christian life in this way up front as we contemplate becoming a Christian which is why he tells us about this narrow way and, or this narrow gate and this hard way and the author of Hebrews wants us to know that if we do not strive to enter God's rest we will fall by the same sort of disobedience as the Israelites did in Numbers chapter 14 who refused to go in and God does not consider the not going in type of faith as the sort of faith which is necessary to enter His rest. So if you say, I believe that God will give us the promised land, and God says, well, go in then and take it, and you say, no. That's not the kind of faith that gets you into the promised land. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. You say, I believe in Jesus. And I believe that I will one day be conformed to the image of God's Son. And that one day I will live with Him in a place where righteousness dwells. 
God says, well, start living accordingly then. And you say, no. Well, that's not the kind of faith that leads from point A to point B. You want to get into the promised land without leaving Egypt, which is not possible. Again, no one objects to being in heaven. But many balk at the manner of entering. Is your faith meritorious? Can you, can you say, well, yes, I've broken the Ten Commandments, but I have faith. And take the merit of my faith and apply it to my account. And I think you'll find that that is sufficient to justify me. Does faith work that way? No. Our faith is not meritorious. Is your obedience meritorious? You say, well, yes, I have broken the Ten Commandments, but I really have tried. And on a relative scale, I've done okay. I think you'll find it's that I've obeyed sufficiently. No. Your obedience is not meritorious. Are you delivering yourself from sin by your own power? Justifying and sanctifying yourself. And will you raise yourself from the grave in the end? No. Of course not. But does God expect you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that you align your life with the claim of Christ upon it and prioritize obedience to Him and His worship above all else? Yes. Is this the nature of true saving faith? Yes, it is. Can anyone be saved who refuses to take up arms against sin and unbelief? No. They will drop dead in the wilderness, so to speak. Well, only those who will take God at His word and act accordingly and go in. Or will go in. No matter what people profess, Jesus tells us on the last day, He will say to workers of lawlessness, Depart from me. I never knew you. As Jesus said then, Repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. The last thing I will leave you with is this. Four warnings. Four warnings about not repenting and believing taken from the typology of this passage. First, the judgment of God in this passage, which is typological of the final judgment, is proportional to one's previously acquired knowledge of God. In Numbers 14, 22 to 23, we read this. God says, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of these will see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. The children of Israel were punished so severely because they should have known better. These were the people that saw the ten plagues. These were the people who had, who had grumbled and received water from the rock. 
These were the people who had received bread from heaven. And though they were grumbling and malcontented about miraculous bread from heaven, God rained down meat several feet deep for miles in every direction just to show them that the arm of the Lord is not too short to feed such a multitude with meat. They had seen all these things and yet refused to go into the promised land. This is why they are dealt with so severely. God contrasts what they should have known with what they did and says, because they have seen my glory and they've seen the signs, I'm going to make sure every one of their bodies drops dead in the wilderness. The more light we are given, the more guilty we are rendered for continuing to stumble around as if we were in the darkness. If you're actually in the darkness and you're knocking over at your grandma's house little tables with trinkets and figurines and special dishes on them and knocking them over because it's dark and you can't see that's one thing but if the light is on and you're carelessly walking around bumping into everything and destroying your grandmother's old ancient uh, china and special glass figurines and vases for flowers and whatnot you're more guilty it's careless it's disrespectful right the more light you're given the more responsible you are if you continue to stumble around we read in matthew 11 20 and following that jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The revelation of God in Christ to Chorazin and Bethsaida rendered them more guilty for rejecting the true worship of the true God and reconciliation to Him through His Son than Tyre and Sidon who never received that precious revelation. Putting all this together then, do you know who will receive the most severe punishment in eternity? It's those who will have sat, would have sat regularly under the faithful preaching of God's Word. And heard the gospel many times. And yet rejected it. It's not the people in the secular universities. In the, in the workplaces out there. Who have never been part of a healthy church. Who didn't grow up in Christian families. It's not all the liberals out there. It's not all the LGBTQ people out there who came from families where 
They were not brought up to know the Lord. They're guilty. But they're not going to be considered the most guilty on Judgment Day. It's going to be the children who grew up in Reformed churches. Who rejected Christ. It's going to be people who tagged along to conservative Bible-believing churches. With their believing friends and family members. Sunday after Sunday. And yet rejected Christ Jesus. It will be more bearable for the liberals and the LGBTQ crowd and so on and so forth than for them on the day of judgment. Because the people that sat in the church pews and heard over and over have seen God's glory. That's the first warning about not repenting and believing that we see in this text. God holds those who have seen His glory more responsible for responding accordingly. Secondly, the judgment of God in this passage, which is typological of the final judgment, is fair down to the man. In Numbers 14, 28 to 30, we read, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Listen carefully to these words. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Note that not one escaped the judgment, except those who believingly obeyed God and were prepared to go in. Don't bank on the hope that God won't notice you filing through the turnstile of heaven amidst the believing masses, though you yourself are an unbeliever. Don't think that He's just going to not notice you filing in there with the believers. Don't bank on the hope that because you were once a friend or an associate or a family member of someone like Caleb or Joshua, that you can ride into heaven on the coattails of that believer. If you do not repent and believe the gospel, then you will perish in the wilderness and you will never make it into the promised land. God's judgment in this passage, which is typological of the final judgment, is fair and precise down to the man. Third, the judgment of God in this passage, which is typological of the final judgment, is ironic. In Numbers 14, verse 31, God says, But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. The irony is that those who thought that following God would be harmful to their children, died. And the children found that following God was the best thing that ever happened to them. By believing and obeying God, they got out of the wilderness and into a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> there is irony in that. There's irony in the final judgment too in that the stone that the builders refused has become the chief cornerstone. 
Those who rejected Jesus, thinking that he was irrelevant to God's program of redemption, find that he is actually the indispensable cornerstone of God's redemptive program. The similarity is this. Those who are wise in their own eyes and think that the, the way God has set it up is not the best way and that they have a better way than God, they find in the end that they are confounded and that their expectations are completely reversed in the end. And so the children don't die by going into the land. The children thrive by going into the land. And Jesus is not actually a stone that should be discarded. He's the stone that we're going to build the whole thing around. There's irony in that. God humbles in the end those who exalt themselves and think they know better than God. And God exalts those who humble themselves now to listen to God. Fourthly and finally, the judgment of God in this passage is final. And the judgment of God in this passage is typological of the coming judgment. Which means that that will also be final. In Numbers 14, 39 and following, we read that the people mourned greatly when they heard the judgment of God. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, here we are. Now we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised. Listen to these words. For we have sinned. So they see their sin. And now they're ready to believe and obey. But mark this and mark this well. They're one day too late. In going up to fight, they were soundly defeated. Because it was, in God's eyes, too late. And he did not go up with them. They missed their chance. Likewise, the scripture tells us that there is a time coming when unbelievers will be like Esau, who afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is a sobering thought. But though Jesus says now that whoever comes to me I will never cast out, there is a time coming when, as in the parable of the ten virgins, the door will be shut. And though men and women and boys and girls will appeal for him to open it, they'll say, Now we will believe and repent. We have sinned. He will say, truly I say to you, I do not know you. There is coming a day when repentance and faith may be a day too late. And you will find no chance to repent, though you seek it with tears. So these four things are sober warnings from our passage. To believe and repent, while we still may. We sang earlier from Psalm 32. Therefore, 
Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Jesus said to me, well, he did say to me, he said to all of us, said to me too, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's true today. It may not be true tomorrow if he should return in the night. Let us offer prayer then to him at a time when he may be found. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded by the fall. If we tarry till we're better, we may never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All that we just sang. There is wonderful news today. There is an open invitation today. There is a promise of God today. There's a promise of entering His rest. And it still stands, according to Hebrews 3 and 4. So let us not fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive to enter that rest. Let us believe in order that we may enter that rest. Presumably, as I said earlier, none of us would object to being in heaven. Not one of us in this room would probably object to being in heaven. Don't balk at the manner, the ordained manner of getting there. Repent and believe the gospel. Let us believe in order to enter God's rest and let us strive accordingly. Listen here. The day of March has come. The day of March is today. Lead on, O King Eternal.